You're listening to Tax Talk, a podcast series from the Irish Tax Institute, which explores the world of taxation and your finances. I'm your host, Samantha McCochran. In this episode, we'll be taking a more reflective look at this week's extraordinary and unprecedented budget. We will be discussing how our economy is likely to respond and the implications of tax changes for practitioners and their clients. We'll also cast a critical eye on the budgetary process itself. Joining me to discuss these topics and more are Sandra Clark, President of the Irish Tax Institute, Tom Woods, Head of Tax and Legal at KPMG, and economist Alan McQuaid. So it's been described as the bumper budget, Minister Pascal Donoghue cast as the big spender. But in reality, for businesses, what will it mean for practitioners and for their clients? So, Sandra, I might start with you. For smaller SMEs, are are they happy with this budget? Is there enough in it, do you think? I think overall, SMEs will be pleased with what came out in the budget during the week. I think the Minister is certainly aware of the challenges that the SME sector are facing. And the budget has continued to give this support to businesses and employees most impacted by the pandemic. There's two particular measures that obviously would have enhanced that. The new COVID restriction support scheme, which is kicking in for those businesses that are impacted by COVID. And it's effectively giving a cash support back to those businesses to help them in and out as restrictions are placed on them. And obviously, with the increased restrictions now to level four for certain counties this week, this even brings more businesses that will be able to avail of this scheme compared to what was known at the time when it was announced on Tuesday. It'll give a lifeline to these businesses in providing the cash support that they need to help meet their fixed costs, such as rent, etc., and to give them the ability to reopen their businesses. In addition, the warehousing, the tax warehousing measure, which allows self-employed persons to warehouse their income tax liabilities, will be of great benefit to the small sole trader around the country who is struggling to find the cash flow to meet their tax bills as a result of the fact that their profits for 2020 have been absolutely decimated as a result of having to close throughout COVID or having restricted trade during that period. And I, I think government has committed to moving very quickly with those measures as well, which I'm sure sure is very welcome. And Tom, for, for the larger companies out there who are also struggling and maybe aren't quite as vocal as, it's, as, vocal as some of the, the, the SMEs are being about the issues being faced, is there enough to support the bigger clients as well? Yeah, I, I think I think understandably this has really been focused on the sectors that have been most affected and the businesses that are serving those sectors. From you know, from the perspective of large corporates and in particular the multinational sector, you would have seen the resilience of the the corporation tax receipts throughout the pandemic, and that that just really reflects the industries that a lot of these multinationals are serving. It, it is incredible in many ways that the corporate tax receipts for 2020 are likely to be, you know, of the order of 1.4 billion ahead of the 2019 receipts, just given where we're at. And and so there are limited, I guess, changes here in the budget that are directed towards some of these larger businesses. But there are some welcomed announcements that were made by the minister, in particular, the two relating to the implementation of some of the ATAD directive relating to interest limitation 
and hybrids, where the Minister confirmed that the introduction of those rules under the directive would be pushed out until 2022. So, you know, that, that that is a very positive announcement that will be very much welcomed, that maintains Ireland as a very attractive location to invest in. There is also, I guess, a, a, a you know, a broad welcome that the minister acknowledged the contribution of the corporate sector in I suppose paying or generating revenues to pay for some of the supports that had been announced and and also the the commitment again to the twelve and a half percent rate. And, and Alan, initially some of the measures that came in were emergency more or less measures. They were they were to deal with an immediate problem. Do you think that the measures announced in the budget will be enough for the medium to longer term or, or will we have to reevaluate as 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 things change? I mean, there were quite a, a few comments from the minister about the potential for the, the scenarios to change depending on COVID and, and also Brexit, of course. Yeah, I, mean, I think it was more a stop a stopgap budget in the sense that I think they focused mainly on the remainder of this year and 2021. Clearly, I think it was make you know the that the budget was framed on the two negatives that COVID would still be with us next year with no vaccine and there would be no trade deal with the UK in terms of Brexit. So a negative scenario. Clearly, we've seen this year some answer that you know you, you can't take anything for granted. We entered 2020 thinking that Brexit would be the only real issue. And suddenly the whole world has been sort of you know, taken over by, by COVID. So I think the minister's tone, Pascal Dunham's tone, was one of hope rather than optimism. You're, you're hopeful that things will, will improve. Measures are in place that will get us through next year and then we'll reevaluate. Re- but clearly, if things deteriorate and there's further lockdowns, you know, more will have to be done, which I, I assume is why this recovery fund has been put in place. I think the recovery fund will probably mainly be to, to keep funding, you know, people on, 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 on benefit in terms of wages, whether it be PUP or the wage subsidy scheme, you know. But it's interesting, I mean, they, they were negative on, you know, the, the tone was sort of cautious, yet the Department of Finance seems to think that consumer spending is going to re- re- rebound dramatically next year, almost you know, fully recovering from the negative year in 2020, which I find quite strange, really, given the sort of tone of that COVID is still going to be here and there's going to be a negative Brexit. I can't see consumers being over-enamoured against that background. So I'd be surprised if consumers come back all guns blazing in 2021. I suppose there's always the danger that they develop new habits and maybe for some some time afterwards are more cautious. Uh, that can happen also. But then I suppose there are... A lot of people who have accumulated money and, and, and been saving, as we've seen as well. Yeah, savings. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, there's always been a, a record level of savings, even though rate, interest rates are so low. And there's no doubt that, you know, if things sort of any light at the end of the tunnel, you assume there will be a massive spending spree. Now, if you look at the last few years post the financial crisis, the Department of Finance has tended to be sort of, um, you know, under promise and over deliver. So I think they'd be hoping something similar in 2021 that maybe we will get sort of light will come quicker than we expect. And then suddenly, you know, consumers will just let loose and there'll be a massive recovery in the economy and economic growth and unemployment. Uh, economic growth will pick up quicker. Unemployment will rebound quicker and, and that more people will be at work and that things will improve. And come this time next year, Everybody be smiling again and, you know, all things will be rosy in the garden. Let's hope so, anyway. Wouldn't that be great? In terms of the schemes that are already in place, 
we've seen that there is a huge amount of pressure on companies to meet tax deadlines to just deal with the the, the bureaucracy that goes with schemes. Sandra, would you be like, what would your view be on? It's great to see new schemes and new incentives and supports coming in place. How how are how how are practitioners and their clients coping with all the extra schemes and all the extra paperwork, etc., that goes with it? Yeah, it's it's an extremely stressful time. There's a huge burden on tax practitioners at the moment. First of all, obviously, earlier this year, we had the introduction of the temporary wages subsidy scheme, which took, like, in, in fairness, it came in with remarkable speed and the government did an excellent job of, you know, getting it out there, getting the money available to the businesses. But with that came a lot of nuances and, you know, issues that we ended up with 18 versions of guidelines for interpreting it, which obviously the practitioners mainly had to deal with and then obviously onward, downward to the clients and to their employees as well. Subsequent to that, then, we had the July stimulus package, which also introduced some some great measures to assist all businesses, which was fantastic to see. But again, there was a huge amount of interpretation required there and advice giving and handling. Also, as a result of the July stimulus, also came with that then some grant applications, funds being made available through Enterprise Ireland, through the banks also. But this, again, has fallen back on the practitioners in terms of preparing cash flows, preparing Preparing budgets, making submissions to Enterprise Ireland and to the banks on behalf of their clients. In the midst of all this, we also had the new employment wages subsidy scheme, which came into effect on the 1st of September, followed closely also by the measure to avail of a phased payment arrangement for arrears of taxes that were not being warehoused out, such as VAT and PAYE. So you could now apply for a phased payment arrangement with revenue for other tax heads, such as income tax and corporation tax, which again was a very welcome measure. But again, another deadline off the 30th of September on that which now has actually been extended to the 31st of October. But again, here we are, we're in the middle of tax season. We have all the corporation tax deadlines, which were due in by the 23rd of September. A lot of members reporting that they're still behind with that deadline. Thankfully, revenue have extended an alleviation of surcharges so that the clients will not be penalised. But we also now have the income tax deadlines to deal with. And it was a very welcome measure that they did extend the normal kind of extended deadline for paying file from the 12th of November to the 10th of December. That also then left an issue for those who aren't in a position to pay their current tax liabilities. And we had written to the Minister and Revenue in this regard as to, you know, the plight that was leaving the self-employed person in who has struggled with their cash flow this year. And also for the members who are trying to deal with this burden of trying to get all the tax returns deadline met on time that they would have to file by the 31st of October. So very welcome measure in the budget that that has also now been extended. So we will have up until the 10th of December to file for those taxpayers as well. But also along with that, we also have companies office deadlines to deal with. And there's also the twist reconciliation, which has to be in by the end of October. So yes, there's a huge burden on the practitioners at the moment in trying to manage the tax affairs. And also to help them survive and get through and to avail of grants where they can and bank loans facilities too. It's going to be a very tough nine weeks to the Christmas break. But um, as I've said before, we are a resilient bunch. We will get there. We're definitely going to need the rest <laughs> come Christmas Day. Yes, for sure. It's a huge amount of money. It, you know, it, obviously, it's been pretty much welcomed by businesses uh, in general. But it is a massive amount of money, over 40 billion euros in two years and borrowing 
should we be concerned about this? Or, you know, is it something we should just park for now or, or should we be worried about that level of borrowing? Alan, what do you think of that? In the current circumstances, I mean, it's, you know, Ireland isn't the only country in this situation. I mean, it's, I think it's allowable at this point in time. The worry is that if you go look back, I mean, politicians are great at giving things away, but they're not so great at pulling them back again when they have to. And the worry is that we get into this sort of situation where we're just spending money freely. Like some of the measures introduced, uh, particularly in terms of increasing numbers in the public service, those numbers probably won't fall back again. So that's a fi- an increased fixed cost for the exchequer going forward, which ultimately will mean sort of uh, higher taxes to pay for that. Now, we're looking at the moment in the sense that interest rates are at effectively zero. And it's hard to see anything, in, uh, you know, it's hard to, uh, in, the, in the current climate, there's no catalyst you could think of that would suddenly change that. So I think rates are likely to remain low for a long, long time, which w- will help the government but as we've seen, as I said before, Samantha, you know, no one could have foreseen what happened in 2020, you know, at the start of the year. So you never know when these things, things can change very quickly. So I think for the moment, I'd be happy enough with it. I wouldn't like to see it's going down these type of budgets for, for too long. I think they can get away with it in the near term. Hopefully, as you mentioned before, if economic growth rebounds and certainly the potential is there, given that we have a very strong IT and pharmaceutical sector and hopefully the domestic economy will recover as well. That will help alleviate some of the pain. But there's no doubt that down the road, we're going to need higher taxes. And really the question then is where those taxes come from. Can, can, can I just maybe add to that? I mean, I, I do broadly agree that the policy that's been pursued at the moment is, is the right one. You know, there was a lot of lessons learned from the, the last crisis in 08. And uh, to be fair, I think there's a lot of prudence applied in looking out over the horizon. And these counter-cyclical measures, I think, have been managed. Measures have been introduced, you know, to support the economy in in this period of crisis. And Alan's right. You know, the, the tax base has been pretty stable. And that does reflect, you know, the industries that a lot of the companies are trading in. And that does give us a degree of comfort, I suppose, and see, you know, shows a pathway to more balanced budgets in the future. So there isn't an open checkbook. And I think there's it's widely acknowledged that there isn't an open checkbook here. But, you know, the measures announced have been pretty focused and targeted at the areas of the economy which needs the support right now. And the fact that we have that good base behind us uh, on the exchequer side gives us, I suppose, some level of comfort. But it really will ultimately depend on a positive mindset at a European level to to support borrowing. And the thing I'd say, sorry, I was just going to say as well, I mean, uh, one of the issues Tom mentioned earlier on about corporation tax receipts being very strong in 2020, one of the other interesting points of the exchequer returns year to date is the income tax numbers, which are actually have held up quite remarkably well. But the reason they held up remarkably well and with only a sort of a short, a narrow shortfall is because the people who've suffered most during the downturn or this shutdown have been lower income workers. And that's, you know, a lot of the talk when this crisis broke in terms of economics and what type of recovery would we get, a V recovery, a Y recovery, then people start talking about a K recovery where the people on the escalator who have the haves are going to be going further ahead of those that have nots. So the view that, that when COVID happened, that maybe this might bring in a new society, that the gap between the, 
the lower paid and the higher paid would narrow, I think it's probably not going to happen. It looks like it's, the opposite is going to happen. But the, the people who have the money are going to get further ahead and those who, who, who nothing really are going to suffer more and less policy changes. Well, well it, is, it, it is a very interesting profile. I mean, it, it is widely acknowledged that our income tax system is one of the most progressive that's out there. And I think the latest numbers, uh, I don't have them to hand, but it's it's something like 37% of workers don't pay any tax at all. And if you look at the top 1%, they're contributing 24% of the income tax receipts. And the top 6% are contributing 50%. In contrast to 76%, I hope I have these numbers right, but 76% of workers contributing 18%. So there's a massive, you know, loading of the exchequer receipts on the income tax side to the, to the higher earners. And really, you know, that has come through very strongly in the numbers where we've seen, you know, one and a half billion in terms of projected reduction in our income tax receipts for 2020. And we've seen unemployment rates hit 16% this year. So it is just, it is really indicating that those that have been badly hit, which we all know are in the, in the lower income tax brackets that may not in fact have been contributing significantly to the exchequer receipts, but they weren't on the other side of the exchequer balance, balance sheet. So they didn't need social welfare supports. And that's where a lot of that value in the domestic economy is. You know, it's, it's keeping people off the, the social welfare supports and measures that are out there. But in terms of overall exchequer receipts, uh, a fairly small reduction. I think as well, we might be, I think we'd probably all agree on this, that if the next government is a Sinn Féin government, that uh, you might be some rebalancing of those numbers. <laughs> uh, now, that might, I mean, it might work, but I mean... <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there is a question as to whether, and we did see in the last crisis that there was a broadening of the base so that more people paid more tax. And, you know, progressively over the last four or five years, we've seen that base narrow again. So that, you know, it's, it's less people that are paying more tax and more people are paying no tax. So you might see a broadening of the base, but I, I don't think in terms of the higher tax rates, you know, that, that there, there is really much room there to, to increase that further because ultimately you want Ireland to remain an attractive location and you want it in particular to remain an attractive location for foreign investment. And if we're seeing, you know, higher tax rates and the higher, you know, income bands, um, that is going to increase the cost, uh, the operational costs of investing in Ireland, which will, you know, make Ireland a, a less attractive place um, to invest in. And we all know that the direction of travel here is to try and get as many people in country to support the recognition of profits in country. And that has been sort of the, the, the direction of travel at an international level now to support the taxing rights of a jurisdiction. Now, there are other elements and we can come on to that, I suppose, in due course with the OECD and the various blueprints that they issued on, on Monday looking to reallocate taxing rights. But, you know, the convention at the moment is really where you have your people, where are you creating your value? So remaining an attractive country for 
for people and bringing people in is actually going to be a critical policy decision that the government will, will have to make. Sandra, we've borrowed a lot of money, as we've discussed there, and maybe it is the right decision. I think supporting business is, is, is certainly what we need at the moment. But there is also the question bubbling under about supporting businesses that really don't have a sustainable future, that once the supports come to an end, that they will ultimately fail. What's your view on that? Are, 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 are practitioners going to face ultimately a lot of businesses which fail and have been artificially supported it's very hard to tell at this stage because businesses and how how they're going to react or how how they're going to trade and how soon they're going to bounce back is going to depend on the level of restrictions in their particular area and obviously depending on on the business that they're actually in certainly i know the vintners association have indicated that some of their members have said that there's a very high risk that you know that they won't survive as a result of the pandemic and the length of time that they have been closed and restricted it's very hard to tell at this stage and until we actually get out the far side, we have to do all we can to support these businesses in the hope that they will survive. And certainly the likes of the employment wage subsidy scheme will certainly help them to get through to the far side. Like There's no reason why any of the businesses should fail if they've cut their costs as much as they can. And then if it's down to fixed costs, it's a matter of maybe just trying to trying to restructure. Ultimately, there will be cases that will just fail. And, you know, that that unfortunately is part of life in any recession and they will have to be dealt with. But we have to give them every chance that they might make it back to profitability and back to employing these people that are now on social welfare it's going to take time to get all the people off the register again and get them back working it's going to take time for that to happen and we have to give the businesses the opportunity to to survive and to get to the far side now just to touch on the budget itself there's a huge build up to it but really does the way the budget is 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 delivered at the moment really serve its purpose anymore we saw earlier in the year the government was responding quite quickly and efficiently to the immediate issues in March and then with the July stimulus. We know so much of the budget before it comes out. Do you think it's time to refresh and reach and change up how the government delivers the budget? I have two two views on this. One one is on a personal level for the you know the everyday taxpayer, the ordinary employee who's out there. I think it's good for them that there is such a thing as a budget day that they you know kind of once a year get to take stock of this is what the country takes in, this is what it's paying out, this is where they're planning to spend the money. This is what's happening. This is what's going to affect you in terms of your take home pay you know, whether it be the increase in the petrol or the, you know, extra 50 cent on the packet of cigarettes. I think it's good for the ordinary, you know, person who's not involved in dealing with tax on a day-to-day basis to get a handle on what's actually happening, maybe, you know, with, with the country's finances. From a practitioner's point of view, and, you know, certainly from the Institute's point of view, the current legislative timetable, which allows less than three weeks to consider often complex tax law from the date of publication to committee stage, is only two months for the entire finance bill process, which follows on from budget day. So obviously we had the budget on Tuesday. The finance bill will issue is due to issue next Thursday, the 22nd. And then you've literally less than three weeks for that to be considered. And what happens often is the issue is compounded when there's new tax provisions introduced in the finance bill at committee stage or at report stage. Inevitably, the result is that, you know, the law that fails to deliver on policy objectives and that then ends up requiring 
clarification through revenue guidance or at worst it can end up resorting to the courts through the tax appeal system. So certainly I don't see any reason why key income tax changes, why the tax legislation should not be published for consultation in advance of the finance bill. So for example, normally in the UK, they would draft legislation five months, I think it is, in advance of their finance bill. And we should be following suit here with a similar process so that the legislation is well thought out and any unknown kind of nuances that might arise without thinking on it can be ironed out through collaborative working between the practitioners and the stakeholders and the Department of Finance. And then the budget can still go ahead for those little bits at the end. As you say, a lot of it does get leaked in advance, but I still think that there's a value to having budget day. It certainly keeps the journalists busy anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I'd I'd agree with all all of that uh, as well. And to be fair to the department, I think that they would their their ambition certainly is to have much more of a consultative process in the lead into the budget. So, you know, it it is a very short timetable between budget and actually enacting the Finance Act. That can be quite difficult if there are things introduced that were not flagged early. So to, to be fair to the department, I think they're they're very much alive to having more consultation in the run in. Obviously, COVID this year made that a lot more difficult. But, you know, on the basis that there is good consultation around the measures that are to be introduced, I think it still remains a reasonable time frame to get things done. Well, I'm not opposed. I mean, obviously, there has to be a budget, but whether the pantomime around the day itself, I mean, do we need that? I'm not too sure. I mean, most of the executive returns are just released through a press conference. I know they have, the budget has to be voted on through the doll. And I agree. I mean, obviously, from a tax perspective, and obviously, you'd like to get advanced knowledge of it. But the, the whole day itself, the pantomime of, you know, sitting up the doll and all this sort of stuff, given that it, it is leaked. And yeah, I suppose you look back. You can look back in terms of, from a political point of view, it makes sense to leak it, given you know recent events. In terms of, you go back to the individualisation issues with McCreevy, Charlie McCreevy, and I suppose I know it's hard to imagine. It's almost forty years ago now, the infamous vast when children choose with John Bruden, which brought the government down. So you know, it 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 makes sense to actually leak the information, so you know there's nothing coming in terms of a shock for. Not necessarily for the consumer or for the for the for companies, but for the government themselves that they're not going to fall on something that they, they haven't thought out in advance. The other issue with Samantha is, I mean, financial markets don't care about the budget anymore. I mean, the days are gone, long gone, where a budget would make a difference to an interest rate on a, an Irish government bond. Given the scenario we're in now at the moment, in terms of the European Central Bank propping everything up, no one cares. So the timing as well. I mean, you know, I think. The public service has to move on a bit here. Numbers are issued. I mean, the exchequer returns released at half four in an afternoon. It doesn't make any sense. Other countries release their data in the first thing in the morning, which we should be doing. The only reason we've moved to budget time at lunchtime is because of the, the makeup of recent years with all these independents having to say it, having to speak on it. When it used to be held late in the afternoon, so people would be working all through the night trying to get, the, the, you know, writing pieces on it. So while the, the process itself in terms of it's the biggest financial statement of the year uh, is important. I'm not totally convinced we need to be standing up and having a huge pantomime over it, you know. You could easily do it in a, in a, in a sort of a, 
a, a big press release sort of thing and with, with sort of the, the whole blue the ball standing up and it was particularly difficult this year for both for both Pascal Dunhu and uh, and Michael McGrath and and years gone by a bigger deal would be made of the fact that it was, it was such a historic occasion that you know to imagine someone from the two biggest parties in the history of the state that are you know so-called enemies, when they call it, or standing up together in a unified budget, you know, m- much more would be made of that. But I, I think the process itself, I mean, you know, the, the day itself, I mean, I'm not too sure we need that sort of stuff anymore, you know. So just to uh, wrap up, can we, each of you perhaps share with me what you think was good and what was bad in Budget 2021? 20, and start with you, Sandra. I think it was good to have the measures that were there set at certain targets such as the hospitality sector with the reduced rate of VAT with the cash injection scheme through the COVID restriction support subsidy and the debt warehousing three you know very important and critical measures for the SME sector in Ireland which was great to see. It was disappointing that it didn't go a bit further in terms of other tax heads that it could have done something with such as capital gains tax there was a small amendment made to the ownership period but they could have went a lot further in terms of for example you know allowing and entrepreneurial relief to apply to passive investors or angel investors as they're sometimes called um, unfortunately the measure is still there that you have to work full-time in the business and in managerial or technical capacity which obviously in my mind you know excludes investors from necessarily maybe investing in businesses in Ireland whereas in the UK they can be a passive investor where they don't have to be involved in the business and still avail of entrepreneurial relief. There could have also been some additional measures in terms of helping companies to retain employees in terms of the KEEP scheme which was introduced a few years ago which is supposed to be like an employee's incentive scheme in terms of shares but it's very very limited in the exposure of it to date at the amount of companies who've been able to avail of it and I think that they just could have done more there in terms of stimulating employment and retaining key personnel within the SME sector. And Tom the good and bad for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd echo largely what Sandra just said. I mean, the, the the good and the great was the the size and scale of the support measures that were announced for businesses that are really suffering through this crisis. And I also agree that I think the CGT, no, no real change on CGT was a real missed opportunity. We have one of the highest rates in the OECD. You know, the government uh, produced a tax strategy or the tax strategy group issued a, a paper there back in September on the various tax heads, including capital gains tax. And they did a table in there with 44 countries in it. And three quarters of those countries had CGT rates of 20 percent or less. And only one country had a rate higher than Ireland by one percent. So I do think for all of the, the reasons that Sa- Sandra mentioned, um you know, we the last time we saw a reduction in the CGT rate, we saw a massive increase in in exchequer receipts under the the capital gains tax head. So we might actually get two benefits coming out of this: one, an increase or a release of stock that you know would be traded and generate some additional revenues which are badly needed. 
but also an encouragement of more investment into Irish businesses and getting equity investment into Irish businesses, which is really what's needed. You would have liked to have seen maybe some broad broadening of the EIIS relief as well, just again to encourage more investment in Irish businesses right now. But yeah, they'd be probably the two, Samantha, that I would say were disappointing. And Alan, would you have some thoughts on this also? I think they they addressed most of the issues that were out there. I think, the, uh, in fairness to them, it was I mean, a, a, a huge stimulus. Most of the companies or most of the 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 air the sectors that have been badly hit seem to be reasonably happy with the response, which I think is a positive. I think on the downside, it's only a small thing on Tim, but I think the income tax. I, mean, I know we alluded to it earlier on about trying to help lower paid, but I think income tax is probably the most psychologically most important tax heading in terms of giving people a lift. An income tax cut, I know you're trying to trying to make sure that it benefits the people who've, who've suffered most, but I think something there on that front, because people have, such, have had such a hard time in 2020, you know, the biggest lift they could get, they see is an income tax cut, I think, you know. I know both Sandra and Tom have mentioned businesses, but from the consumers who were there, you know, who have taken the hits and have to lock down, etc. I mean, I think I think they'd like to have seen something positive on, on, on income tax just to give them, even if it's only temporary, just to give them a lift and get them through to the end of the year. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for sharing your views on Budget 2021. And that's it for this edition of Tax Talk. <laughs>